Welcome to episode one of Contextualizing STEM Education in Liberia, West Africa. I'm your host, Rodney Bodie. This podcast tells the personal stories, dreams, and challenges students in Liberia endure in the pursuit of empowerment through STEM education. During various episodes, we will hear about how these help shape their pursuits. This podcast is also a production of the Institute of Basic Technology, a nonprofit hands-on STEM lab providing access to students in economically challenged communities in Africa. Let our model predict and improve the outcome. Find us at www.institutebasictechnology.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Institute of Basic Technology. Today, we begin with my own story. It's Christmas Eve, 1989. The entire country is in a festive mood. Everyone's completing their last minute shopping. Preparations are underway for massive amount of cooking the next day. Christmas music is blaring on every radio station and the only TV station in the country. This was the pre-internet age, you see. My Christmas on you all would be how we generally greeted one another during this time. Liberian parlance for where's my gift? As a preteen, I'm buzzing with excitement, anticipating the presents, playing with my friends, and eating a lot of my mama's good cooking. But that Christmas Eve night, few armed men crossed over into a local village from the neighboring Ivory Coast. What they are about to do will dramatically alter the lives of many forever, including mine. More on that later. 500 miles back in the capital, Monrovia, I am unable to sleep with thoughts swirling about in my head. The night seems to last forever. Will Christmas Day ever arrive? Finally, the big day is here and I'm all decked up in my latest Christmas gear and ready to celebrate. But then I see something that doesn't appear to reflect the moment. Around this time, my parents and the adults would normally gather to open gates, eat, sit around, chatting it up, drinking beer. However, I see them with certain look on their faces. I would later learn that there had been an incursion at the border and the government was working to squash it. Now, Liberians were very much accustomed to hearing about coup and assassination attempts during the rule of then-current President Samuel Doe. In fact, his government had come to power through a coup d'etat, you see. However, during his regime, any such attempts had all failed. Therefore, what was happening near the border would be no different, it seems. Needless to say, Christmas Day for most of the country went on as planned. I heartily enjoyed running around the grounds of the local Sufi ice cream parlor with my friends and eating a lot of delicious jello fries. About a week or so later, some of my dad's siblings are at our house in yet another sober gathering. Uncle Isivio and Auntie Margaret appear to be saying something to my parents, except this time the certain faces became sad. Very sad. My grandpa and grandma, along with some of the people living in Butuo, 
a town closer to the border, had been summarily executed in the town square on mere suspicion of collaborating with the invading rebels. At the time, the family didn't know that their youngest sibling, my aunt, had survived the ordeal. And what we would later learn from her would cause a split in the family. Just a side note here, Grandpa David Bodie was a local government official in the town, the district commissioner. I remember him being a man of few words, but placed a lot of value on education. Once, I had skipped school and went over to Aunt Margaret's where Grandpa was visiting. He was very nice, shared some snacks, talked, and so on. But when he later learned that I had skipped school, he was furious and regretted sharing with me and sternly warned me of never doing that again. That was my singular interaction of this sort with him. So now he's dead. Dad, his siblings, our family, and all extended families had to mourn with our body. The part of the country where he was murdered was a no-go zone, too dangerous to venture into. Wait, wait, you might be saying or thinking to yourselves, I thought this podcast is about stories in STEM education. Yes, it is. However, the story would be incomplete without the context of the Civil War and how it decimated lives and infrastructures, the impact of which is still being felt today in Liberia, the austere context within which most students must do STEM. All right, I digress. A dual war is still raging in other parts of the country. The year 1990 comes with a lot of excitement for me now a 13-year-old. I'm headed to one of the best private schools in the country, St. Patrick's High School. For me, the prospect of having a girlfriend and having more freedom just got real. So although the war is raging, however, it seems so remote and so far away, at least in my preoccupied teenage mind. However, this sense of normalcy gets occasionally interrupted by trucks of heavily armed government soldiers zipping past my school. St. Patrick's High School, you see, sat about a thousand feet from the executive mansion, the seat of the presidency. My first high school dance comes about three weeks into the school year. I go to the dance that night with my very good friend, Momolu Merchant. He's a couple of classes ahead of me. He knows the ropes, I figured, since he's been at the school for a few years now. This is the first night I'm out at a program with the full blessings of my parents and unsupervised. It's the 90s, and so here I am with a huge fake gold chain looking like a 90s rapper. Insert MC Hammer. I'm feeling really good, but when the music comes on, my body disappears onto the dance floor. The song playing that night is Shower Me With Your Love by the American band Surface. I'm frozen on one side of the room as the girls are staring back on the opposite end of the dance floor. When I can finally move a muscle, I mustered enough courage, headed for the exit, and hailed a taxi home. Yep. 
Seventh grade is going great. Our science teacher, Ms. Ajero, addresses us as scientists and it feels empowering. Although at this point, I'm not sure what I really want to do, but the class ahead of us, 10th grade, and the classes above are the only guys involved in intense lab experiments. I look forward to when my opportunity will come. Unfortunately, it never did. Almost midway into the school year, the chatter everywhere centered around the advancing rebels and the looming showdown in the streets of Monrovia. During this time, people start to report family members missing or picked up by men in plain clothes. This becomes increasingly alarming for people of the Mano and Gio ethnicities. The ruling party of President Doe is predominantly made of the Kra ethnic group. Quick historical context. Doe comes to power through a coup d'etat in 1980, and one of his best friends and member of his squad is Thomas G. Kuiwankwa, a prominent Gyo. Through a series of unfortunate events, Doe and Kuiwankwa are no longer friends. Kuiwankwa stages a coup in an attempt to overthrow Doe and gets killed in the process. This all bubbles up at a tribal level, pitting the crowns against the Gyo and the Manos. The rebels advancing on the capitals are pre predominantly made of the Gil and Manos. But wait, how are the Manos involved? Well, the Manos and the Gils are from the same county, heavily intermarried. Both languages are derived from the Don language and so on. FYI, the explanation here is very cursory. I encourage anyone interested to read further on the topic. So in a nutshell, the crowns are, on, are, are the ones in power and the advancing rebels are predominantly made of the Gills and the Manos. The irony of this impending conflict is that my parents identify with all three tribes. Grandpa is Crown, born and raised in Grand Jeter County, the home of the Crown. He later settles in Nimba County, the home of the Gills and Manos, where he marries a wife and raises his family here. So my dad grows up speaking Gil and identifies as Gil. My mom, on the other hand, is Mano born and raised in Nimba County. The only reason we kids knew how to speak a little bit of Mano at all was because mom took us for a vacation to Nimba every other year. Even worse, our last name Bodhi is Crown derived from Grangita County, the home of the Crown. Yet, we hadn't the faintest idea on how to speak crown. Basically, this creates a perilous position for us in an approaching civil conflict with a substantial tribal bent. So the war is at the doorsteps of Monrovia, the capital city. The crowns are targeting suspected Gills and Mano sympathizers. My own heritage is composed of all three. In the midst of these ongoing disappearances of Manos and Gills, my parents are getting increasingly alarmed. Also, there's an influx of people who are being displaced by the conflict into Monrovia. Unable to filter the growing population, the government is getting increasingly paranoid. Those with personal vendetta seize upon the opportunity to exact revenge. For example, a simple workplace dispute could result in a colleague falsely accusing one of being a spy for the invading rebels. A neighbor alerts my mom to the presence of strange men casing our home during the wee hours of the night. This news greatly unsettles my mom and affects her work. At the time, 
She is working at the public information arm of the U.S. nations in Liberia. Her boss, knowing the ethnic composition of our family and the impending mayhem, offers his home to our entire family, his official U.S. diplomatic residence. His name is David Crecky. I still remember the late afternoon of June 1st, 1990. I just left my buddy's house here, yeah, same guy who built on me at the school dance. I see this white Chevy station wagon drive into our yard behind my parents' car. My parents urge us kids to pack our bags that we are leaving for Mr. Crecky's home. Confused and excited, in a few minutes, Dave is driving us back to his home in the Greystone compound, as it was called. We drive into this fortress of a compound and wind our way up the hill to this huge colonial. Inside doesn't disappoint. The pantry, the refrigerator were full of so much food that, that I've ever seen. Cable TV, yes, cable. All this time, I did not know there were more TV channels. The U.S. Embassy had flown non-essential staff out of Liberia. This included Dave's family. So my family basically has Dave's house to ourselves. Over the next several days, I'm so engrossed in exploring this mini America that I'm oblivious to the chaos unfolding outside the gates. People are in the streets demanding the resignation of President Doe. The school year is unofficially done. Weeks later, the war finally reaches Monrovia. The entire Greystone compound is overflown with people fleeing for their lives. The compound becomes a sprawling metropolis of makeshift tents, and also Dave invites two new families into our house, his house already, the Yamentos and the Barrios, prominent journalists at the time. During this time, I escaped into various books of the shelves, one of my favorite, The Adventures of Pinocchio and also Huckleberry Finn. As the crisis worsens, the U.S. government evacuates Dave out of the country. He will keep in touch with us over the course of the war. The West African countries convene a peacekeeping force, ECOMOG, which arrives in Monrovia at the end of August 1990. Their singular goal is to help to bring peace and end the senseless war which had left thousands dead, displaced, or as refugees in other neighboring countries. Toward the end of 1990, the West African force is also able to broker this peace among the warring parties and we return home. Schools across the country start to reopen primarily in a rehabilitation capacity, specifically as a way to keep us kids preoccupied or occupied, I should say, help us process uh, what we've just gone through and provide for us free meals. Not too long after the peace accord gets shattered due to disagreement amongst the warring parties, and we are on the run again. This pattern of making the peace and breaking the peace would continue throughout the duration of the 14-year civil conflict. At one moment, the uh, warring parties will sign to an agreement and have the entire country thinking that we could rebuild our lives, and the next we were packing our bags and running for our lives. This all came to a head in 1992, October, 
when we became refugees in the neighboring Ivory Coast, me and my entire family, actually except my mom. She had to stay behind in Liberia and provide for the family financially in the Ivory Coast. At the time, employees of the U.S. missions, specifically the uh, public information arm that she worked for, was still paying its employees. So my mom decided that she would stay back and help sustain our lives as refugees in the neighboring Ivory Coast. Integrated into the local Ivorian culture was challenging, to say the least. French is the official language. Francefa is the official currency, and so trying to attend an Ivorian high school was just not in the cards for me. Finally, some religious organizations such as the Catholics, Methodists, and Seventh-day Adventists are among the first to open schools for refugees in the country, specifically in, rural, in the rural town of Danane, where there's a large refugee population. So while we are waiting for school to open in Danane, we start to take a survey of the town with nothing to do. We uh, spend our days walking the streets and looking at stuff pretty much. So it was during one of these days that we run into uh, my aunt. Do you remember my aunt who had escaped that ordeal with, with my granddad uh, back in the situation at Butuo? Old lady was how she was affectionately called. We uh, run into her and she relays to us the story of how granddad along with the other villagers were murdered. Essentially, my uncle, my granddad's son-in-law, who is from another tribe, is there the day the army is in town. After Granddad is accused, he tries to gain the support from this uncle, who flat out denies he knows him. To make matters worse, this guy returns to the city at the time and mourns with us. Yeah, he did. He does not mention anything about the situation. However, with this new revelation from meeting old lady after all of these months, actually years, my aunt divorces him because this guy was married to my granddad's oldest daughter. I had barely spent a semester in eighth grade back home. School had to close down really early and when we since we all had to make a run for it. So I'm here. And now I get the opportunity to pretty much determine what I wanted. At the time, I'm 15 going on 16 when we are refugees in Danane. So like most teenagers, I'm having a rebellious streak at the time, especially now with no guidance I'm left for the most part to determine my own way. Schools at the time did not require official transcripts or proof of identity since they assumed we were all fleeing a chaotic situation and trying to gather one's credentials wouldn't be one of those things that you would do. And so I took advantage of this opportunity to create my very own persona. I became Mustafa Chavrak, a 10th grade student. And you might be wondering 
how did I come up with such a name? Well, Mustafa was the name of a, of, of the villain from a 1990s action movie. You might remember uh, Delta Force with Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chuck Norris. Chuck Rock, on the other hand, was the name of one of my favorite 90s rappers. I didn't always know when I was being referred to in class. Once, my English teacher was saying something to me and said, Hey, Chuck. And I had no idea he was talking to me. It took me a minute to figure that out. So David and I, David, my brother, and I were at the Catholic school for about a semester. And then we uh, transferred to the newly open seven-day Adventist school right down the street from our house. Yes, it was that easy to uh, transfer out of one school to the next. Again, no paperwork was required at the time. At the seven-day Adventist school, I returned to being Rodney Bodie. I dropped the persona Mustafa Chubrak. I figured I could, and so I did. There at the school, I relished the opportunity that came with being the uh, class clown, the uh, disruptor of class, and I occasionally came to school inebriated. I uh, also ran for class president against the wishes of the uh, biology teacher at the time, Ms. Masa Abdullah. I was able to win the uh, votes. However, that came with a whole lot that I would later regret. One day during exams, I believe it was the third period exams, I was accused of something that didn't sit well with me and disrupted the entire examination hall, the entire school. At the time, I uh, invited the entire faculty to a fist fight uh, in, outside in the yard. And when no, none of them heeded my uh, invitation, I proceeded to ask for a refund from the school. <sighs> to put it short, I uh, got expelled and this was something I would come to regret when I would later see my friends who had cheered me on during that time walk by on the way to school and I had nowhere to go to. Dad returns from Abidjan, the capital city of Ivory Coast, and learns that I'm no longer in school. Although he's not happy, he works to convince the next refugee school run by the Methodist Mission to admit me. After some negotiations, I'm admitted into the afternoon program. Although the uh, new campus is about six miles from home and walking under the intense heat while logging a lot of books was no fun, I was just really happy to be back in school and in the 10th grade. Back in school, I begin to excel in the uh, Protestant Methodist Christian School. Some of my favorite subjects were geometry, taught by Mr. Thompson that I really enjoyed because it seemed so clear and he was a cool guy and played the guitar. I also enjoyed English literature, taught by the late Sylvester Vani Passawi, a former newspaper editor. He seemed to have his way with words and spoke English really, really good, I thought. Chemistry and biology, on the other hand, were a huge struggle for me. I think in hindsight, it was the lack of labs that made them really tough for me to grasp. Since we needed to rely heavily on the explanations of the teachers and also the diagrams, 
they are produced. In any case, I did my best to uh, excel and, and keep my head low and stay out of trouble. Until that is when I get slammed with another expulsion. Second school, second expulsion. During the study hour, the class president at the time has said something that didn't sit well with me. A teacher intervenes, the principal intervenes, and everything blows out of proportion and I'm escorted off campus. Let's say my dad wasn't too thrilled when he found out I was kicked out of school again. After excoriating me, the next day dad takes me back to school, the Methodist school that is. He's able to eventually persuade Reverend Harris to let me back in school. But this acceptance or reacceptance comes with a catch. I aim to level this almost four foot end hill which stands in the middle of campus in one day. The hill was well built. No wonder why the Bible gives a shout out to the ants. Using a shovel and a manual digger, a wheelbarrow, I work intensely, literally from sunup to sundown. Finally, with aching joints and blister palms, I'm able to accomplish my mission. A couple of days later, I'm back in school, a changed man. 1994-95 academic year, I am in 11th grade and doing rather well. During this time, the local Avorian population is growing tired of the ever-increasing refugee population. This is partially because this led to a corresponding increase in the price of food, transportation, housing, and other basic commodities. This was unwelcome for most of this poor and rural Avorian population. This simmering tension will boil over during soccer games between Ivory Coast and Ghana, an English-speaking country. Every time Ghana won, we, the English-speaking Liberian refugees, went into hiding. Didn't go to school for several days and stayed home. A good friend of mine once, Dominic Tompo, became an unfortunate victim of one of such incidents. He was beaten and his shoes stolen. Another friend, sadly, was gang raped, to name a few. So the various refugee communities started to form vigilantes to protect ourselves. Most of the time when we reported incidents to the local authorities, they did nothing about it. They too had become tired of our presence and so allowed their local population to have a free reign. Going to school meant traveling in packs and closing the ranks. During one such commute, a foreign object was launched at us. To be fair, this hostility was frowned upon by some Avorians. I had good friends who were Avorians and sympathized with our plight, but were unable to do anything to help. Toward the end of the 95 school year, the situation is becoming untenable. Getting assaulted as a refugee was becoming commonplace, and so although I was doing really well academically, out of abundance of caution, my mom had her flown back to Liberia. The Zigwos, the Methodist missionaries who were instrumental in establishing the refugee school in Ivory Coast, helped me in gaining admission to the 12th grade at the uh, College of West Africa, 
a prestigious Methodist high school in Monrovia. April 1996, as we are wrapping up and celebrating our last days of high school, the warring parties are at it again. Once again, my mom, siblings, and the rest of our family are displaced. And you guess it, Greystone Compound. Only this time, there is no Dave Crecky and there is no fancy house with a chef. We are sheltering under a makeshift tent that comes falling apart under the heavy downpour. The best we can do at this point is to protect the few food items we've brought. After this, we are able to sustain the peace long enough for us to have an election and elect Charles Taylor, the same person who had started the war, the rebellion, earlier in 1989, out of abundance of fear, most people had chosen to elect him. So 1998, I am finally able to go on to college, at least our version of college at the time in Liberia. I'm enrolled at the Don Bosco Polytechnic where I'm studying electronics engineering. 2000-2001 comes a new rebel group at the border fighting to unseat Charles Taylor. Now Charles Taylor is having to deal with his own insurrection. At a broader level, this creates another uncertainty for the population as everyone is afraid. This all too familiar scenario has my mom reaching out to Dave. During the course of the war, we had kept in touch. Somehow they were able to use the army post office system to deliver care packages to us. At the time, we had hundreds of U.S. Marines stationed within the country to protect U.S. interests. My mom had implored Dave that he help my sister and I pursue a better education within the States. July 31st, 2001, Dave and Joanne successfully sponsored us on a student visa and opened a home to us in Bethesda. I cannot even begin to describe those initial days, the average weather being 60 degrees, aisles at the grocery store that seemed to stretch forever in every direction with so much food. Everybody seems to have a non-Liberian accent. This was strange. My poor taste buds struggling to compare the new cuisines I was now tasting to something familiar back home. And I learned to stay clear of American slang quite early. Once I was at a party and I uh, said to this girl, you are a party pooper. At the time, I thought it meant uh, she brought the spirit to the party and was, you know, was quite bubbly and uh, was lively. However, I learned that was quite the opposite. Fourth of July was not always my favorite time in those first years. The explosion of the fireworks were already unsettling, followed by occasional imaginary gunshots that would wake me from sleep. It would take me at least six or seven years to articulate this as a PTSD. And I uh, found this out one day while listening to uh, the local radio station when an Iraqi war veteran was recounting his experience, which really seemed familiar to me. Anyway, Dave and Joanne did their best to make my sister and I feel comfortable with them taking us to the local grocery store, African grocery store, 
helping us keep in touch with our family members here and back home. The official semester at Montgomery College began late August of 2001. I chose to major in electrical engineering at the time. Although I had started my electronics engineering program back in Liberia, however, I chose to not transfer any of those credits since I felt the foundation needed wasn't there. Moreover, the labs that we had at the time, the engineering labs, I should say, that we had at the time were better equipped, to put it bluntly. And I'm very glad I did. My first class was an 8 a.m. calculus, one class taught by Professor Dalton. She seemed to love using the Texas instrument calculator and that crazy projector on wheels she kept placing some transparent plastic containing the answers on. To make matters worse, she gave homework, like lots of homework. Next, I had chemistry twice a week and then labs, performing experiments. Most of the kids seemed to know what they were doing. At least that's what I thought. I, on the other hand, barely knew the names of some of the instruments. So when I needed to read directions to locate some of the requisite apparatus, it was a struggle. Physics, digital design brought out the experiment galore. Dr. Day, Dr. O'Brien, Professor Hartman, for some reason loved using the oscilloscopes, inclined planes, stopwatches, building logic gates, writing uh, computer programs, to name a few. The experiments never seemed to end. There was always some hands-on activity happening. This was quite different from how I learned engineering in Liberia. Boy, was I wrong to feel that English class would be any different. Professor Thurston, my English professor, gave us an experiment to cut open an apple, observe it over time, and produce a two-page essay. Yeah. Not only did I have to write papers, but they had to be typewritten. Until this time, my very limited use of computer in Liberia consisted of primarily playing games and surfing the net. At my own pace, I might add. Now, I'm required to type a 180-page paper double-spaced with a 12-font size. I was a hunter and pecker, you see. So every paper took hours of labor. I had come to the U.S. at the age of 24, going on 25. Looking back at how chaotic and disruptive my teenage years were, I credit mine becoming a Christian as the fundamental reason for holding on to any sense of normalcy. Prior to this, becoming easily unraveled, angry, and combative was how I saw life. In Christ, however, I found the acceptance, foundation, and direction that I needed. In short, this pivotal event prepared me for the opportunities I would later encounter as challenges when I came to the U.S. So now, although it's an uphill battle studying engineering, but what I see is a future I almost didn't have. And now, if it were to slip through my fingers, it would not be because of a gunman. No excuses, I told myself. Many would have loved this opportunity. What about the sacrifice of my mom, Dave and Joanne, who believed in me and rolled the dice in bringing me here? What if I did well and succeeded? Could I pay it forward? Their selflessness got me here. The best repayment was reaching the finish line.
So I clawed my way to obtaining my Associate of Science in 2004. The same year, I matriculated to the George Washington University. It was surreal being a GW engineering program on a scholarship. And actually, at the same time, I had gotten accepted at the Catholic University of America engineering program. There's just so much I could say about, about my time at GW. And uh, since this is a podcast, I'm going to make this as brief. However, a few things that stand out to me was when I first got there, was realizing how young everybody was. At 27, at the time, every other student there seemed to be in their late teens or early 20s. So out of sheer embarrassment, I hit my age. I'm not sure if any of my roommates I had over the years really knew how old I was until we all graduated and went our separate ways. I could say much more about my uh, time in the engineering program, but suffice to say, I made it through with a lot of experiences uh, that I can fully recount on this podcast. In the summer of 2005, one day on my way from church, I'm catching a ride on the van back to the metro station when I uh, encountered this beautiful lady who would later become my wife. In 2007, Sylvia and I get engaged. I graduated school, got my first full-time engineering job, and got married later that year in December. We both realized that given our common Liberian heritage, we wanted to help make a difference in the country. Given our own story of how education empowered us, we wanted to help do the same. We therefore launched a nonprofit STEM organization called the Institute of Basic Technology in 2017. We worked with local high schools to support their curriculum by providing hands-on STEM activities in biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, to name a few. Today, almost 2,000 students have gone through our programs onto colleges, universities, vocational schools, or written their own accounts of successes and struggles. So finally, looking back over everything, the war, Ivory Coast being a refugee, I'm thankful, no regrets from those experiences. It's made me who I am. It's my story. It's inspired me. It's helped me. 14 years now, I'm happily married with two beautiful kids. I've been working as a research and career engineer going on 14 years now. I hold a master's degree and I uh, just started the initial work toward my doctor of engineering at the Johns Hopkins University. Sylvia is a practicing physician. My mom and the rest of my family now live here in the States. Dave and Joanne have become a part of our family. In fact, my son is named after him. Thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Institute of Basic Technology. Do join us every week as we bring you brand new stories of Liberians who have gone through the struggles and the triumph and, and made it in STEM. Thank you for listening. Take care.